0: Thank you. is quite a rainy day in New York City today and pretty cold. So if at any point you hear a weird knocking sound or sounds in the background, it's just my radiator doing its thing. I hope you have had a wonderful week and a half-ish since the last time I put an episode out. Um, I'm actually doing pretty good. I have this new hard pumpkin coffee. It's called Happy Coffee. And I got it at crater Joe's and it's actually pretty damn good. So it's been a great day so far. Um, I hope you're liking this new bi-weekly schedule. I don't have a whole lot of updates for you other than sort of being pretty busy this semester. So I'm trying to get in the habit of recording a few episodes at a time. We'll see how it works. Studying for Orals has been difficult to say the least, especially with teaching and taking a class at the Met, which is fucking awesome. Um, yeah, so I have a pretty nice schedule planned for y'all. The upcoming episodes are going to look at the Danza de la Pluma, a Zapotec resistance, constructing national identity, Indigenismo, mestizaje, and la raza cosmica. Then I'll have a survival guide to college application season featuring my friend Cecilia Norval. And then around first week of November, I'll have Día de Muertos for you. Um, so we're going to talk about that. I'll also have Food as Ritual, okay. Ancient America's Understanding Visual Culture Through Language. And then we're going to look at Pop Culture and the Use of Ancient American Motifs, Neoconcretismo, and Kinetic Art. So quite a packed schedule ahead. Um yeah, I'm really trying to sort of focus on some of the themes that I'm actually studying at the moment to make my life easier. But also, these are really interesting concepts, and I think you'd much enjoy them. So I'm very excited for what's to come, and I hope you continue following along. And if you aren't aware, I finally made a TikTok account. Um, I resisted it for long enough, and since I really want this podcast to grow, I figured TikTok is probably a really good way to make that happen. Um, so you can follow me at Artwatch Podcast. The content is going to be different than the Instagram and Twitter pages, but the handle's the same. So yeah, check it out. And I look forward to seeing more of you there. So as always, it's time for that patron shout out. Thank you, Caitlin, for being a wonderful patron to Artwatch. If you'd like to become a patron, you can check out the different levels at www.patreon.com slash artwatchpodcast. You can get some really cool stuff like close friends on Instagram, discounts and Artwatch podcast merch, and even original art created by me. Yes, I make art. No, I'm not a failed artist. I took studio classes, but I really loved art history. So here I am. Um, but if you don't want the monthly commitment, which totally get, but if you'd still like to support the podcast a little bit financially, you can always donate to the artwatch podcast website. Just click the support artwatch button on www.artwatchpodcast.com. Also, you should check out the website for other things. I offer a lot of really cool resources. I'll be updating the blog post to have more educational stuff and yeah, super excited. So as I make merch and stuff, would you all like spooky fall or wintry things? Let me know. You can email me or DM me. Um, If you didn't listen to the last episode, I did introduce a new series called Art Story. So basically, this is your opportunity to write in and tell about any crazy, interesting, or unbelievable art experiences that you've had within the arts world or maybe performance, travel, theater, anything like that, um, send me an email, artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear your fun art stories. But on to today's topic. So I can't believe I actually haven't covered this yet because I spent almost two years working on it. And today we're going to talk about my master's thesis titled Ionizing Modernity. It's publicly available on ProQuest or pretty much any library resource that uses ProQuest. Um, So check it out. I'll also have the link in the show notes. Um, Obviously, since I wrote this in 2019 and sort of like the spring of 2020, I'm going to point out some things that I'd like to enhance sort of throughout. Um, obviously my writing has improved since then. I would be really disappointed in myself if it hadn't. Uh, but yeah, so I thought this would be a great way to begin talking about more conceptual ideas and scholarship, obviously through art. I love learning about individual artists as much as you, but I know that it can seem a little one note because these artists didn't work in a vacuum and they had interesting conversations, not just in person, but through literature, poetry, manifestos, Visual culture and different movements. Uh, so they weren't producing work on their own, right? They're they have they're having all these really cool interactions with each other, and this is how we get the different movements that we're familiar with today. So today we'll actually be talking about the early twentieth century Mexico. No, we're not going to talk about muralism, although there will be a little bit in there. It's not the main focus. So. While it's interesting this episode is more about indigenismo or indigenism, uh, if you want to do a direct English translation, the term indigenismo refers to a period in Latin American history where the indigenous body and indigenous culture were used for the purposes of creating a national identity. In the 19th century, and even teetering into the first few years of the 20th century, many countries throughout Latin America were beginning to fight independence from spain aka the colonizing force and in the case of brazil it was independence from portugal but same concept essentially these countries were tasked with creating an identity that was separate from their colonial oppressors and a key defining factor for many but not all latin american countries was indigenous history so governments begin to sponsor almost a revival of indigeneity. Of course, well, all this is happening, the genocide of indigenous and black Latin Americans was also still happening. So it's a very warped sense of identity. It's quite complex and different for each country. So I'll keep this segment brief since we're going to talk about it at length um, in the National Identity episode, which will be in a couple weeks. Uh, but schools of art or academies begin to incorporate more indigenous histories, but of course it was still pretty damn Eurocentric. In Mexico, the Academy of San Carlos was established actually by the Spanish government during the colonial period. Um, actually began to use indigenous history and mythology for history paintings. So for those listening that are still new to art history, this is huge because history painting was the most prestigious form of painting. It might not seem like a lot, but incorporating primarily Aztec history into the academy was then positioning indigenous identity at the forefront of cultural thinking. But anyway, back to San Carlos. The works that come out of the academy featuring indigenous iconography were still heavily Europeanized stylistically and symbolically. José Obregón's 1869 painting, The Discovery of Pulque," features the pre-Hispanic legend in which an 11th century ruler, the so-called king Tekpancatzin, sorry, I'm still learning Nala, so some of my pronunciations might be pretty bad. Um, anyway, he receives the first cup of the newly discovered cactus liquor, or pulque. If you've never tried it, you personally don't like it, but you should try it. Some people really like it, and it can be good. Mixed flavors are good. But anyway, so, back to the painting. (laughs) On the right, we see the enthroned ruler and his courtiers. And then in the center, Sochidil, the young peasant woman who discovered the drink, presents it to the ruler. So to either side of Sochidil stands her parents. At the same time, we see servants. One of them is actually carrying the magay cactus itself. We're entering into the room from the left of the painting. So, Sochidil, or build, depending on how you want to pronounce your X. Um, I know it varies by person. She's a very fair with Roman like features. And similarly, the king has only slight indigenous features with a very light tan. Um, it's clear he's not entirely white, but we can see that he has a lot of European features as well. So, in contrast to everyone else in the painting, it's clearly distinguished with darker skin and Non European features. Um, sorry, they are distinguished with darker skin and non European features. There are a lot of other paintings that cast one or, in this case, two indigenous subjects as mestizo or racially mixed with European and indigenous descent. Typically, it's like a 50 50 situation. So, what is this? What this does is first recall cast paintings and the racial hierarchies present in mexico based on one's ethnic composition often this is actually referred to as an empieza de sangre or blood purity second this also positions the main subject of the painting as pre-accepting christ and by extension colonization which ultimately justifies the conquest of the new world this also has the added layer of the concept of the noble savage, and I'm doing, obviously you can't see it, little air quotes, um, which basically separates, quote, good Indigenous subjects from bad ones, uh, who refused to assimilate. Obviously, this was a very simplified and condensed explanation. i go into it a little bit more in my writing, but for the sake of a timely episode, um, I've, I've shortened it, but Stacy Woodfield has an in. Inqu- Incredible book on this called The Embodiment of the National in Late 19th Century Mexican Painting. I used this extensively throughout my research, so shout out to Dr. Whittafield. She's an amazing scholar. I'm so sorry I had to say no to Arizona, but I would still love to work with you in the future, okay? And I'm done fangirling. Anyway, another way that these newly independent nations distinguished their identity was through world fairs. So these events were ways for countries to showcase their innovative arts. Culture, science, and well, basically everything. In the case of Mexico, casts of monumental Mesoamerican sculptures were made in one iteration of the Mexican pavilion. Designs from the Pyramid of the Feathered Serpents, which you might remember this from the Teotihuacan episode, which you should check out. Um, the casts were taken and blended with forms from Templo Mayor, which is an Aztec site, and then this was peppered with statues like Guadalique, who also covered we've also covered on previous episode. Check it out, the Olmec heads and other works um, from various Mesoamerican sites. So what they're doing is they're blending all of these cultures into one Mexican pavilion, and they're saying that this is Mexico. Um, so this essentially condensed and hybridized all Mexican, oh, sorry, all Mesoamerican cultures into one for the sake of national identity. Now you might be thinking that's not that bad, but it actually is. This way of thinking created an indigenous monolith that fetishized living indigenous subjects for the sake of national identity. Now, on top of this, the government actively pressed these populations. So we might not even think of it as a type of cultural appropriation because the leaders who organized and designed this event were largely criollo, or entirely of Spanish descent, and typically these individuals were from the elite classes. Now this method of identity building actually spilled into the Porfiriato Centennial. If you're unfamiliar, Porfirio Diaz was a dictator between the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. His dictatorship was a large cause for the 1920 revolution, and the centennial was quite the event meant to showcase Mexico's technological and artistic prowess. But, of course, a lot of it hinged on extracting labor, arts, and culture from living indigenous subjects. The Diaz government actually forced, with the threat of physical violence and economic destruction, living indigenous tribes to perform for the centennial this went into the costumes that they were forced to create um, the actual performance the different characters all of the music everything every aspect of the performative indigenous identity that mexico was trying to create this was all by force and these communities did try to resist but eventually the mexican government and centennial planners sent armed soldiers to these communities and it was very clear that in order to survive we had to do this um so yeah super super problematic and performances themselves were rooted in aztec history which many of these indigenous tribes were not a part of so we have all sorts of cultural and historical inaccuracies happening here um and again, this is sort of fueled by the idea of indigenismo, which sort of lumps every indigenous community together. Um, so now we're going to fast forward about 20 years. I do go into a lot more detail regarding the centennial in my thesis, uh, which you can read if you'd really like, and I'll put the link in the show notes, like I said earlier. So after the 1920 revolution, Manuel Gamio and José Vasconcelos, who will talk about extensively in an upcoming episode, uh, began to fund artists to visit ancient sites and living indigenous communities, Um, and they would send them all throughout Mexico, so there wasn't any specific site that they were forced to study, and that'll be important later on. So the goal was to study these places and people and essentially report back on authentic quote-quote Mexican culture that could be used in official law. Public Programming and even in public education, and Vasconcelos, since he was the Minister of Education, he actually implemented a lot of these ideas into the general populace um, and It's part of the reason why it was so effective, and some of these ideas are still actively used um, I think unintentionally today uh, so this is when we begin we begin to see artists using living indigenous subjects as inspiration for the quote primitive. Um, If you're familiar with the idea of the primitive, it's super, super problematic. But Mexican artists who were studying in Europe were inspired by European paintings that relied on this idea of the primitive. But for many Latin American artists, and I'm going to plug the Torcio de Amaral episode, they found that they could use their own national history for the primitive. And this elevated their art because unlike their European counterparts, they wouldn't have to look outside their country for primitive inspiration. Um, I'm trying to say the word sarcastically since obviously you can't see me continually doing the air quotes. So the artists I covered in my thesis were Roberto Montenegro, Lola Cueto. I have an episode on her too. Um, And then, of course, you know him, you love to hate him, Diego Rivera. And last but not least, Mexico's first female muralist, Aurora Reyes Flores. My argument at the time was actually centered more in gender because of the primary use of the indigenous woman to create national identity, but I've since come to realize that gender is only one facet of this, and race, which is intrinsically tied to class, is an equal factor as well. Um, So if I were to do this all over again, I would focus a lot on this too. So Montenegro is one of the first artists I found to use the Maya figural canon on living subjects. His painting, Mujeres Mayas, positions four Maya women in a rather barren landscape. Each woman is in a profile manner that accentuates certain facial features and their head shape. Um, this This one was pretty easy to recognize that Montenegro was referencing classic Maya canon. After all, the title of the work is Mujeres Mayas. What's significant is that it's directly looking at classic Maya figural canons as seen on painted vessels and stelae. In many of his graphics, Montenegro also referenced the classic Maya style um, and their compositional structures by having these different um, blocks using different registers, uh, and also the presence of, in his case, abstract glyphs. But it's clear that we can tell he was actually studying these Maya works. And so I'll include some of his prints on the Instagram post, but I'm going to move on to Lola Cueto. So since she is the next artist and I have covered her in an episode before, and you should definitely check it out, uh, you kind of already know that she worked primarily in folk crafts, which made her work super interesting, at least from my perspective on this, because we get this added layer of symbolism. A few of her weavings reference market scenes or rural settings that focus on the female body. And you can tell she does try to incorporate some of the flatness and bodily positioning as seen in Maya works, but because of the medium she uses, it has an entirely different visual quality than those of her counterparts. But we know that Cueto actually created a weaving of this, um, that was an exact copy, or a close to exact copy Lintel twenty-four, structure twenty-three at Yaxchilan in Chiapas, Mexico. This lintel actually depicts King Shield Jaguar II and his primary wife, Lady Shuk, performing a bloodletting ritual. Um, the weaving itself is incomplete, but you can tell that Cueto pays close attention to detail, particularly in the woven garment that Lady Shock wears. Um, so there's a lot of pattern work, a lot of design. And you can tell that she was closely examining the lintel, or some photograph of it, but I would bet that she actually saw it in person. Um, so additionally, we can tell that she's also observing the glyphs, even though they aren't fully formed in her tapestry. The shapes are clearly resembling the source. We can see there are actually some calendrical glyphs present, and you can see some of the numbering systems, which I don't know if she would have known that they're numbers, but from my studies of of the ancient Maya, I know that there's I know what some of the glyphs are. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's really interesting that she uses the folk craft because it's almost like she's recalling the traditions of women's art. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting, and I talk about it a little bit in my thesis. But as I know, we have a limited time on on each episode. Let me move on to. Diego Rivera. So then we have Diego Rivera, and like he's the worst. But I like some of his work, but he's the worst. Um, the big gist of Rivera is that this guy does not give a single fuck about cultural accuracy. Like, he doesn't care. He just wants to throw everything together and I don't know. He just he doesn't care but pretty much every single one of his murals that deal with Mexican history or the history of any Mesoamerican civilization, he does not actually use the correct cultural styles, which is significant because at this point in history, they knew that each of these civilizations was distinct. He just did not care. Again, I'm going to say that he did not care. So my thesis pulls in, I think, Five or six of his works, but I'm really only going to focus on two for the sake of time. A lot of people are very familiar with his mural that is at the Presidential Palace titled The History of Mexico. Now, this mural depicts the pre Columbian, colonial, independence, and post 1920 revolution periods. Uh, Like most frescoes, the time periods blend together, and like I said before, he doesn't care about cultural accuracy. Uh, so he, some of this is pulling from like the Renaissance tradition of fresco painting, which is why some of these timelines blend together, but um, we'll see in a minute. I think that it's intentional. I think it's an intentional blending of, of time. So in the ancient portal of the extraordinarily large mural, we know that Rivera is actually referencing Aztec history because of the chronology present in the work and some of the different motifs. But the majority of his figures are composed using this Maya figural canon. So some might argue that Rivetta pulls from all Mesoamerican cultures, which can be true in some instances, but not really this one. This one blends the Aztec patterning and deities with the Maya figural canon. And when I wrote this, and still even now, I have yet to find a scholar that digs into the different styles that he references. All that they typically state is that he was inspired by pre-Columbian art, which, like, they aren't wrong. But it's deeper than that, and it's much more intentional. Um, And one of the methodologies that I used was actually, weirdly enough, from a professor who I studied with uh, at my current university. His name is Josh Cohen, and he has this really great... um, essay or book chapter. I can't remember. It's like called Fove Masks, but he's exploring the European use of the primitive, but that it's an intentional appropriation. And so we see the same thing here. It's an intentional appropriation of a specific culture. Um, gosh, where was I on my notes? Oh, okay. So now onto the modern portals of this mural, there's little reference to the maya canon simply because he focuses on portraits of historical figures who were either of mestizo or criollo ethnic background and like i said earlier i have since returned that was a weird way to say that returned to the research knowing that it was also heavily tied to race and class which are somewhat intertwined at this point in mexican history so this concept of using the Maya canon to denote race and class is prominently seen in his mural, The People Demand Better Health, which is located at a hospital in Mexico City. In this mural, Rivera depicts the modern era and the ancient era, which is separated by an Aztec deity named Plaza who is the goddess of dirt, debauchery, and childbirth, and new probably have seen her in one of Frida Kahl's portraits, which I think is titled Birth of Frida, or My Birth, something along those lines. Uh, She was very self-referential in her paintings, so I'm sure you've seen it at some point, or you can easily find it. But in the ancient portion of the mural, we see indigenous medical practitioners studying herbs and performing different healing acts, and I think in one part you even see a childbirth occurring. So, of course, he's using the Maya figural canon in a majority of these subjects, and he gets that profile nature, elongated head, full lips, broad forehead, broad nose, um, and like kind of almondy shaped eyes. Um, yes, this is where it gets interesting. So, if we look back over at the modern era, Rivera uses this canon to specifically denote race and class. And he carefully only applies this to patients who are clearly of the campesino class or the rural working class based on their agricultural-like attire. So there's overalls, um, kind of like that, that style of, of clothing. And in contrast, all of the nurses, doctors, and politicians are clearly white or a very fair mestizo. Some even have blonde hair. Um, So what does this do visually and culturally? Well, first, it reinforces racial and social hierarchies in which people intended to be of indigenous descent cannot achieve the same levels of education or socioeconomic status as their mestizo or criollo counterparts. Second, the use of the classic Maya canon on modern indigenous subjects. Um, Let me repeat that. The classic Maya canon actually goes all the way back to no later than around 900 CE, super far in the past. By collapsing this time, he's implying that these subjects are unchanging. And additionally, it implies that all Indigenous subjects look the same and perform the same types of labor, and they're consistently in the same class, which in this case is the working class. So this flattening is also present in Montenegro's work because of the way that he depicts the maya women as physically the same and nearly identical to the maya canon and he's overlapped them and stylized them in a way that it looks like they're just floating on top of each other we have little to no dimension in them and this again reinforces an unchanging indigenous population which is super problematic so rivera does this in so many of his works and in his murals related to Teotihuacan, the Toltecs, and other civilizations, he again relies on the use of the Maya figural canon to depict these indigenous subjects, which are in entirely different cultures. So again, we're creating this hybrid, this hybrid identity. Um, anyway, the last artist that I'll briefly talk about is Aurora Reyes Flores, which She's great. She's Mexico's first female muralist. Reyes is a bit of an outlier in my grouping. She was the youngest of the artists and therefore attended the Academy well after the others. I looked at her as almost this transition between the generation, um, between the generations, because she does have many of the same themes as her predecessors, but the styles begin to change in her later work. Looks like it easily could have been an inspiration for the Chicano movement. Um. So full disclosure, at the time that I was conducting this research, there were only two or three digitized references of her in English and maybe a handful in Spanish. And since I finished my thesis, her bibliography, or sorry, her biography has been much more fleshed out, which is amazing because her work is incredible, but it's still rather sparse. Two of her works that I looked at were Yucatan Market, which was made in 1953, and El Primer Encuentro a mural made in 1978. So in Yucatan Market, she does use the Maya canon to construct the female indigenous body, and the subject's positionality is reinforced due to the rural setting. So she's carrying this basket, we can tell that she's looking at like different food stalls, and we can even see a female figure sitting in the back. Um, in contrast, her mural El Primer Encuentro, which tells the story of Malinche, Somewhat uses the canon but her style really begins to break away from muralism and early Mexican styles altogether. But in um uh, the central figure, the central um Aztec figure who's sort of like sweeping in, uh his face has that like elongated look. Um but it almost it almost looks like she's blending that Maya style with and I know this probably isn't the best comparison, but it really looks like art of the early Chicano movement. And I don't think she'd be pulling from them. I think you'd be vice versa, given how the Chicano movement formed. But if you can have that image in your mind, that's kind of what it looks like. But I, I fully recognize then, and even now, that this is probably the weaker part of my argument. And in my defense, I really think that it's the lack of information available related to her. And I have a strong feeling that her other earlier works would include some of these same themes, given that it was pop- it was becoming popular with the rise of indigenismo, mestizaje, and overall efforts in creating a national identity. Not to mention, she's working in the same spheres as these artists, so chances are she's going to have some overlap in in themes. Um... I'd really like to revisit her work at some point and hopefully if I get a chance to go to Mexico for dissertation research maybe I'll be able to to look at her work again. But um ultimately I, I really think that her art was similar to her predecessors in that it was a way to reinforce official policy and ultimately each of these artists was at some point primarily funded by the Mexican government. So while they can be critical, we also have to question how critical can they really be if their financial dependency is off of the government. Um each of these artists did rely on the use of my iconography to create a racialized other. Part of this part of why this was so successful was that then and even now my indigenous populations still exist and were seen as the social and political impediment for Mexico becoming a modern nation. Um, the elite class looked at all indigenous populations as a burden because they refused to assimilate. And at this point in history, the Aztec population was more or less understood to be, quote, extinct um, because they had all been sort of, for lack of better terms, bred with Spanish colonizers. Therefore, the entire assimilated or rather Mestizo population in urban Mexican areas were thought of as the descendants of the once great Aztec Empire. Obviously, this is super flawed on so many levels, but I'm sort of just giving you an idea of, of what they were thinking. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really definitely very messed up. Um. So, By these artists positioning modern indigenous subjects as a monolithic Maya type, it justified the Mexican government's assimilation efforts for the sake of modernity, while at the same time it relied on the Maya type to create the primitive avant-garde art that could only be found in a modern Mexico, hence the title, Mayanizing Modernity. And this was more or less the basis of my thesis, which again, you can read for free. Um, It's not incredible incredibly long I think it's like no more than 100 pages including images bibliography all that fun stuff so where do I want to go from here I hope that I've made my research somewhat clear in pointing out these problems and I know that my actual manuscript does go into much more detail so again hopefully you can skim that at some point I fully recognize that there are weak spots in it, and I'd like to eventually return to this research, either in the form of an article, a book, or maybe an exhibition. Um, I think an exhibition could be incredibly compelling because you'd be able to see it visually and in person, but of course, with the limitation of you can't pick up a mural and move it, so (laughs) Um, we'll see. If anyone wants to sponsor this, I'm going to toss my hat in the ring. Um, But yeah, the next major step that I really want to take is flipping the coin and finding indigenous representations of the self that negate national identity building efforts. And we'll talk a little bit about this in one of the upcoming episodes on the Zapotec Danza de la Puma, which has actually become a foundation of my dissertation research. And Part of my dissertation will be reapproaching the definition of indigenous within the context of Mexico, and so this is an incredibly difficult task for many reasons. One being that the Mexican government, uh, their definition is incredibly narrow and doesn't allow for any multiplicity. And I know that some of you must be thinking, "Wow, she's fucking crazy to try and change the definition." But the 20th century Mexico made it a requirement that an individual must speak an indigenous language and live a authentically indigenous life in regard to their attire, diet, profession, etc. So all this does is reinforce the idea that indigenous subjects are unchanging, which is super problematic. And not to mention, um, while I was in Mexico City, I saw this really wonderful show. And, and granted, it was it was by the Mexican government in partnership with UNESCO. Um, but the one of the featuring essays, which I think was like the the entry essay. It was written by an Indigenous performance artist and um I am forgetting her name at the moment. And I'm so sorry. Let me let me check. Okay, I found it. It's Diana Rosette Luciano and her exhibition essay was incredibly powerful in that she described her experience being of indigenous background. But somewhat losing some of her culture because her mother never taught her her indigenous language and part of it was because of the injustices that her family faced. And uh her mom eventually took her and I think her one of her her sibling to Mexico City to sort of have a better life. And there's one um anecdote in it where she's describing her mother being on a payphone, calling her f- family in their home village, and she's speaking the indigenous language. And a lot of the individuals around are giving her dirty looks for speaking an indigenous language and sort of like presenting as indigenous. And so this was a, this is a contemporary artist. So this is still happening today. And so In her essay, she also talks about how a lot of her professors during her MFA program were basically telling her, you have no right to tell Indigenous history because you're not Indigenous. And they simply said that because she doesn't speak an Indigenous language. She has that culture and she has those cultural traditions that are, that have been passed down to her. And so this is sort of where I'm struggling in that it's such a difficult task because there are so many traditions in Mexican culture that obviously do come from indigenous history, but at the same time, we also have to recognize that not everyone is indigenous, and I know I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for that um, because like you know you can go back a couple generations and track you know your indigenous heritage, but at the end of the day if if your family isn't continuing with with that culture to the, like, to like, I don't know, a certain extent, can you really claim that heritage is your own? I mean, apparently I even have like indigenous heritage on my dad's side, but I didn't grow up with it. I'm not going to claim that identity is me. I can't like, I can't ethically do that. And so I feel like it's the same as a lot of artists of the 20th century and I might get a lot of flack for this, but even Frida Kahlo, she's sort of embodying the indigenous woman by dressing up as a Taijuana. And there is an argument that I, I think I've read that her mother may have been indigenous. Um, so we, it's it's really complicated. And so this is what I'm struggling with, but this is where I want to go with it. And so I know I've kind of like drawn on, on it, but um, yeah, and so my goal is to sort of Brought in the definition to include artists who, like Luciano, grew up with this heritage, but maybe don't speak the language. And because of that, they've been overlooked. Um, but also be narrow enough to not include people like Diego Rivera who have no business calling themselves indigenous, right? Um, so I don't know. This is like the the idea that I have right now. I don't know if it'll work out, but we'll see. Um, And so, yeah, my goal is to sort of, like, with my dissertation, negate the idea of Mexican indigenous communities as passive victims, because obviously this is a harmful narrative. There are actual acts of resistance, both in physical form and oral traditions within communities that we can trace and talk about. And these indigenous communities have known about them for generations. It's just a matter of them not having a voice in the academic realm. And so that's sort of what I want to Push for. And this is how I I would like to to alter the art historical canon. And so, yeah, this is just a couple of my hopes for my dissertation. And for all the listeners out there, if you do know of an Indigenous artist who I should look into, help a girl out and email me or even DM me. Um, I really want to change the Indigenous... I really want to change the art historical canon by including indigenous voices. And obviously I recognize I have a huge privilege in that and that I'm not indigenous and then I'm an outsider. So if I get things wrong, I want to fix it. Um, anyway, off my soapbox. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Um. My handles are the same on every platform at art Watch Podcast. If you would like to tell me about an artist's lead or if you have an art story that you'd like me to read on air for a new little mini series, email me artwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And then as always, check out the website www.artwatchpodcast.com. New content is coming soon to include more in, um, educational resources. I can't believe I almost forgot I needed to, you know, shout out all of my mentors for my thesis. So thanks, Dr. Kuntz. He was my thesis advisor, um, really instrumental in my undergraduate thesis as well. And even today, uh, he still continues to mentor me. So I'm super grateful for his scholarship and mentorship. And um, also thank you to Dr. Tejada for continuing to foster my interest, not just again, not just in undergrad, but also in my grad program at, at University of Houston. Um so kind and a brilliant scholar. And then last but not least, thank you, Dr. Beachell. She's a wonderful art historian and um incredible scholar as well. And she was so influential in my work and, and always pushed me to be more radical. Um, So I really enjoy her conversation and, of course, her scholarship. So thank you for all of y'all's mentorship. And I continue to take the lessons that I've learned with you into my Ph.D. program as I continue to grow as a scholar. Um, So have a wonderful week and I will see you next time.